Brother Gaddis asked me to preach the uh, commencement, and a quartet of students, uh, male students, sang that song right before the uh, commencement message. And I'm sitting there listening to it, and I'm thinking, this, I don't know this song. This is really good. And then I found out Stephen wrote it uh, with the help of his mom, and that made more sense, too. But anyway, um, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, I, I was blessed by that song. Again, I mean, that's good. That's really a blessing. Thank you. And I love that song uh, that they sang that Miss Julia wrote on behalf of the old uh, preacher. Boys, we've got a lot of work to do. Isn't that good? Man, I like that. I enjoy that and inspired by it. And I do appreciate it very, very much. And looking forward to this uh, time. I think this is my third uh, time to um, Open Door Bible Baptist Church and both times been a delightful experience, and we like coming to this city. We, we like it. In fact, I think I've said this to young men, everybody, everybody that cares about the ministry ought to come to New York City. And I'm not saying God's going to call everybody here, but everybody needs to see the kind of a mission field that exists right here in the United States of America. And this isn't the only city by any means, uh, but just as we went about a little bit today, I hardly heard anyone speaking English, you know. And this is another one of the places in the world where the world has come. And uh, boy, oh boy. And somebody, I've been asked, do you think you could live in New York City? I mean, you talk about what a great visit is there. Uh, I feel like if I was called here, that God would give the grace to it. He wouldn't call a man and not give him the grace. Would I make the conscious choice to live here instead of Oklahoma? No. <laughs> but God has had me in Oklahoma, and that's where I'm supposed to be. But... Uh, I thought about, wouldn't it be great if you stop and think about, I don't think this every single day, but wouldn't it be great uh, to have lived like some of those men in Genesis, seven, eight hundred years? And, you know, I could pastor in Oklahoma 150 years or so and then go preach in a New York City or a Los Angeles or some of the other Chicago needy cities of our world. You could go here and there and, you know, you could go to four or five mission fields for 50 years each, and wouldn't that be incredible? I guess I'm the only one that has that kind of imagination, but to me, that would just be incredible. Now, there are other days that I say, praise God, I'll be out of here for long, you know, uh, but anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's really something to think about. I've enjoyed that. Now, will I do what I taught today or what I teach in the class uh, in a sermon? Well, sort of. Uh, not completely tonight. I'm going to preach the whole book of uh, Nehemiah. So I understand what time it is. I just don't care. We're just going to... No, I do. I do care. We're not going to. But I am going to take the big picture look at Nehemiah. And uh, we hear so much about uh, leadership today. There are people that will go to leadership conferences, not saying they shouldn't, not saying they shouldn't, and they're seeking for leadership ideas. There are those that hand out books that were written by CEOs and, and, uh, and corporate leaders and such as that. And, uh, boy, this guy wrote a book on leadership. You ought to read it. And I, I, honestly, I really don't understand all of that. I truly don't. Not when we have a book like this. And not when our calling is, our calling is not the same as a five-star general in the military or a CEO of a major corporation, that's not what our calling is. We're shepherds. We're to feed the flock. We're to be leaders of flocks, give guidance and leadership. 
to a flock. And so uh, I think I'm amongst people that realize that Nehemiah is really a book about godly leadership. And uh, in fact, uh, I, I'm convinced and preached a series at Southwest a number of years ago on building godly leadership and uh, used the whole book of Nehemiah. Oh, my, there's a lot of great preaching in Nehemiah, and many in this room know that. But I'm, I'm not going to preach the whole book per se, but I'm going to take the big picture look at the book of Nehemiah and talk about the need and the development of godly leadership. Now, there is a dearth of leadership all over this land. I said there's a dearth of leadership all over our land. In politics, just because a person gets elected doesn't make them a leader. And, uh, and, and the right kind of leader, that's for sure. And uh, there's a dearth of leadership from the highest office in the land to the, to the, to the home. To the home. I get told by missionaries every once in a while, well, you understand, Brother Sam, uh, I live in a, and serve the Lord and do ministry in a, matriar- a land where there is a matriarchal society. And I say, well, you may not understand, but I live in a country where there is pretty much a matriarchal society. Maybe not in the same sense as some of the nations that we could mention, but the uh, problem is there are just not enough men that are exercising godly leadership in the home. There, it, 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 there's, a, there's a dearth of that. And uh, sadly, it's affected the pulpits too. And we're going to talk about that tonight out of the book of Nehemiah uh, about godly leadership. Now, uh, we had a student in practice preaching last year. His name is uh, Stephen Montoro. And Stephen got up to do his preaching and he said, because of the, here's how he started, because of the high Bible IQ of my audience today, well, those are his classmates in the practice preaching class, and because of the high IQ of my classmates or my uh, audience today, I will not have to work uh, very hard on the background. And he said, because of the high Bible IQ of the audience, I gave him plus 10 right there for sorry, I don't have a category for that. But I thought, this guy's smart, you know. I mean, here he's addressing this audience, and the first thing out of his mouth is, you have a high Bible IQ. You're not impressed by that? I was very impressed by it. I thought it was really good. That's a smart move. And then he really preached a good sermon, too. So I understand where I am tonight, that for the most part, I I realize not everybody's at the same place in the journey as a Christian or as a believer But I do think that probably overall there's pretty good understanding of the book of Nehemiah, understanding that uh, when the Israelites went into Babylonian captivity, they were in captivity as was prophesied for 70 years. And after 70 years, it is God who reached down and stirred things up. And uh, the first thing that he had was for Zerubbabel, uh, the governor, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, to come back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild the house of God. And so they came back, they laid the foundation, they waited 16 years before they ever did any more to the foundation. And so now they've been there about 20 years and the house of God's not built, then they build the house of God. After they build the house of God, of course, that's a wonderful time. They reinstitute uh, worship there and the observance of the Passover. And it's a time of rejoicing. There's great joy there. But then it was about 58 years later that there was a need for a builder of another kind to come. 
And that is that there was a great need for revival in the hearts and lives of the people that were in Jerusalem and back in the land. They uh, see that first Passover they got all excited about and had great joy about when they first rebuilt the house of God. I'm going to say by year 10, it was sort of like this. Well, it's time for the Passover again. And by year 20, they would say, the Passover again? Is everybody with me here? You understand how this goes? And by year 50, it's, man, it seems like we go, it's a pain to go to all the trouble to go and observe the Passover and everything. And whether they were saying those words out loud, God knew that was their attitude. I said whether they were saying that to each other is not the issue. God knew it was the attitude. So he rose up another builder, and that would be Ezra, who came back to rebuild the people. And sure enough, Ezra came back, and through the preaching and so forth, uh, there was revival among the people. And we could uh, go through that, go to the book of Ezra and see that. It was a a time of revival. And then um, after Ezra, then and the house of God, uh, was uh, the uh, people had been revived. Then 11 years after that, here comes Nehemiah, who is also a builder, and he's going to build the walls. And so we understand that Nehemiah is stirred up by God, and God stirring up Artaxerxes so that he could come back and uh, re- uh, rebuild the walls. We understand that it was a great time. Now, the city of Jerusalem, as you remember, was a mess. That God put it upon this man's heart to do some rebuilding. And I'm turning to Nehemiah and chapter 2, uh, where under the leadership of Nehemiah, it says in verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So that's an exciting time. The people were motivated. They were stirred. And Nehemiah is the one upon whom God put the burden. And he passes it on. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so that's a good thing. And they got to the work. And then you read on and uh, go over to chapter 4 and verse 6 said, So built we the wall. Well, that's good. The progress is being made and they are building the wall. Then you go to chapter 13. And when you come to chapter 13 and look in, what is it? Verse number 6. You come to verse 6. Uh, no, not verse 6. Hold on just a second. got to find it. Where is it? Was it? Is it chapter 6 where it says, So the wall was built. Yeah, that's where it is. Chapter 6 and verse 15. So the wall was finished. So we go from this. Let us rise up and build. So built we the wall. So the wall was finished. Well, this is really good. I mean, this is really good. This is what it's supposed to be. Now, what is uh, we haven't talked about is that from the time that they said, Let us rise up and build... Until so the wall was finished, I'm telling you, a lot of things happened. There was a lot of adversity. There was a lot of difficulty. There were many things they had to work through. But it's out of all of that difficulty that we have come to recognize that Nehemiah is the, is, is any great example of a godly leader. And so the wall was built. And then you come over to chapter number eight. And of course, when you come to chapter eight, you recognize that as the revival at the Watergate. It was the seventh month, and, and uh, the people were dwelling in the land, and they all came together uh, for the feast of the seventh month. And when they came, why, uh, they had this great uh, gathering at the Watergate. And you know what happened there? What happened there? 
Well, Ezra stood up and preached. Uh, I mean, he preached and the priest taught. So the Word of God was being taught and preaching was being done. There's a pulpit of wood made and he stood up on it and he began to preach. And if you read all of chapter 8, you'd find that there was great conviction there was weeping and there was mourning because the just the reading and the extensive reading that they did and the preaching of the Word of God wrought conviction because they began to be aware. Uh, we should have been doing this and we haven't been. We should not have been doing this and we were. And they were confronted about their sin. Read chapter 8 sometime. It, it was amazing. In fact, their sorrow, their grief and, uh, and repentant heart was so real that finally Nehemiah had to say, okay, enough, enough. And he told him, go have a feast. Okay, you've wept and you've mourned over your sin. All right, now that's enough. Now let's go rejoice. Well, if you follow it on and go into chapter number 9, in chapter number 9, it's really amazing because now they have been so moved and so stirred that they are confessing the sins of their nation. Listen to this, please. We Americans ought to learn this. That we are, they were confessing the sins of their nation as though they were guilty of all of them. Well, they're confessing the sins of generations before them. And, and their fathers before them. And they're pouring out their heart and confessing, Oh God, our, our nation hasn't gone through anything but what we deserved. I mean, we deserve the captivity. We deserve that we have been through all of this difficult time and adversity. And so they are stirred. And, and chapter 9 is a great chapter of repentance and praying and confessing and agreeing with God about their sinful condition. Look down at verse 38 of chapter 9. And because of all this, so having confessed and gotten right with God, look in 638. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it in our uh, princes, Levites, and priests, and our uh, princes, Levites, and priests, seal unto it. And then chapter 10, I, I know you've memorized all these names, so I'm not going to read them. But in chapter 10, verse number, uh, down through verse 27, you have the names of the people uh, that were the leaders of the people that were there. Here, here they are. And so their names are there, and they write down that they want things to be right between them and God. Excuse me just a second. And they are so sincere about it, they said, we will attest to it. We will write our name down to it that this is what we ought to be doing. And then they made certain commitments to the Lord. Look in chapter 10 and verse 28. And what they said here is, from now on, we're going to separate ourselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God. Their wives, their sons, their daughters, they were all had knowledge and understanding of this. So do we understand? There had been compromise of the people with the heathen or the pagans of the land that were there. And they said, this is wrong. And we're convinced of it from the Watergate sermon. And they have confessed it. And now they're making it right. So they said, enough of that. We're through. We're going to separate ourselves. Almost a nasty word in today's pulpit. Separation. But it's still in the book. See, And so they are going to separate themselves from the heathen and the pagan. They're not going to adopt the ways of the heathen and the pagan. And we're going to commit ourselves to God and to the law of the Lord. See, now they're serious about this. And look on in chapter 10 and verse 30. The second part of the covenant they're making with God and attesting to it by their signature is this. We would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. 
No more of this intermarriage between the heathen and the people of God. We're not going to do that anymore. And they signed to that. Verse 31. Uh, and if the people of the land bring wear victuals, we're not going to use the Sabbath day as just another business day. That's in verse 31. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to pay attention to the Sabbath day. It is holy to the Lord. They understood that through the revival that had taken place. And so we are committing ourselves to observe the Sabbath. That's in verse 31. Now, in verse 32, they said, beginning in verse 32 all the way through verse 39, it it boils down to this. Everybody with me here now? We're going to take care of the house of God. And we're going to take care of those that have the responsibility to take care of the house of God. We're going to take care of them, too. In other words, we're going to enable the priests and the Levites to do their job. So their offerings and their giving are to cover so that the priests and the Levites would be able to give attention to the house of God. Enough of this neglecting the house of God. We're not going to have the ways of the heathen among us anymore. And we are not going to give our sons and daughters uh, for this intermarriage. And we're going to pay attention to the Sabbath. And we are going to take care of the house of God. Look at the last words of chapter 10. And we will not forsake the house of our God. Is everybody with me here? And they they made this covenant with God. It was written down and they signed it. They're putting their name to it. So I'm, I'm of the persuasion they meant it. I'm of the persuasion they were sincere. And the, the, well, the uh, revival at the Watergate had produced this kind of result. We're not only confessing what's wrong, we're going to confess this is what we are going to be like from here on. Amen. And how serious are we? Put my name down there. And they, and, and they signed it. That's a serious stuff. You ask, if you don't think it is, then ask a church member to sign a teacher's worker's covenant. You'll see what it is, big deal it is, to see... That these people were serious. They volunteered. We'll put our name to this. And you got the whole list if you want to read it. It's back there in chapter number nine. The whole list of men, ten, the whole list of men that did just that. Okay, so then life goes on. And Nehemiah is called back to Babylon. And he is going to go back, no doubt, to give a report. Uh, he was authorized to come and rebuild the walls. And it was a time, apparently, that he is to go back and he is to uh, give accountability and to give a report. So he is gone for an extended period of time. I, I don't know how long. I, I'm, maybe there are people that think they do. I'm not sure anybody really knows how long. But for him to go uh, do his business, make the trip back, it was an extended period of time, perhaps two, three, four years. Could have been that, at, at least. Might have been five or six years. And Nehemiah is away. But he comes back. And when he comes back, things are not as they ought to be. It's a sad picture. Really sad. It just seems like, yeah, they made this commitment. They had the revival at the Watergate. And now they made this commitment. And now Nehemiah comes back and realizes that they may have meant it. And they may have put their name down, but what they are doing is not the same. And it's at this point that some real strange, uh, most people would say extreme leadership characteristics show up in this Nehemiah. Really some interesting stuff. For instance, let's look down in uh, chapter uh, number, let's go into chapter 13. 
in chapter number 13. And in chapter number 13, when Nehemiah comes back, you can read this in the early part of the verses. He comes, it came to pass that he came back. And what did he find? Well, what he found was, first of all, that the priest, Eliashib, had given Tobiah, now come on, if I say Tobiah, good or bad? The bad dude. Uh, Sambalat and Tobiah, a real opponent, an enemy of the Jews and the purposes of God. And look what happened. They said we're going to separate ourselves from the heathen, but look what their priest Eliashib did. Uh, when he came back, he found out in verse number 7 through 9 that Tobiah had been given a chamber in the house of God. They had taken one of the rooms or one of the chambers of the house of God, and Eliashib the priest took it upon the self, uh, himself to provide accommodations for whom? For Tobias, who is the enemy of God and the enemy of the purposes of God, and he's letting the dude live at the house of God. Man, this is this is bad. This is bad. Yeah. If you want to see Eliah, if you want to see uh, Nehemiah's response, then all you got to do is look down in verse number eight. It grieved me sore. Therefore, I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers. And hither they brought, uh, brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. He didn't belong in there. The things of God belonged in that chamber. So if you can just picture Nehemiah coming back, and he realizes that this enemy, Tobias, has a chamber there. He goes right into the chamber, starts grabbing all of his stuff, his clothes, his bedding, his bed, and starts chunking it out the door. Now, I don't know how that affects you. I like it. I personally, I really like it. This is what ought to happen. And so he goes in. This man has no part nor lot in the house of God, the things of God. He's the enemy of God. Get his stuff out of here. We have already made a covenant that we're not going to be uh, intermingling with these people. And here he is in the house of God. And he gets his stuff and throws it out. And then he said, now somebody get some Lysol in here and let's clean this chamber out here. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I may like it alone, but I like it, man. This, this is getting serious. Now, watch this. Look at verse number 10. They had another problem. And I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. Well, wait, 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 wait a minute. You're going to take care of the people that take care of the house of God, and you're going to take care of the house of God. But you haven't been giving what you're supposed to give so the Levites and the priests can do their work. Verse 11, Then contended I with the rulers and said... Why is the house of God forsaken? You put your name down with no date of limitation on it. And now look, the house of God is being forsaken again and not being tended to. And he said, I contended with them. Now look at this. I love this part. I gathered them together and set them in their place. What does it mean he set them in their place? You have to be told. It means he got them back to doing what they were supposed to do. It means he got has them back in their place. Well, we're gonna we're gonna rectify this. We're gonna amend this. And he and he contended with them. He was contentious about it, and contended with them and put them in their place. That's Nehemiah. You think this is godly leadership? I know it is. I know it's godly leadership. 
Now, hold on. We're going to talk more about it. Okay, let's see now. Look down to verse number 15. In those days, I saw some, I saw in Judah, some treading wine presses on the Sabbath. When? On the Sabbath. And bringing in sheaves. And lading asses, as also wine, grapes, figs, and all business as usual on the Sabbath day. Uh, didn't we talk about that before? Wasn't that a part of the covenant they were making with God? That we're not going to do that anymore? And so Nehemiah goes away and makes a necessary visit back to Babylon. And when he comes back, look at this. They are not observing the Sabbath day. And so down in verse number 21, he chides them seriously about it. And verse 21, he says, Then testified I against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall waiting on the Sabbath day to come? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I don't think we're talking about an ordination service here. Uh, This man is upset. He said, from that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath day. He shut down all business traffic on the Sabbath day. Somebody said, well, who does he think he is? He thinks he is supposed to see that people do what they said they were going to do. Now, this isn't a, a nebulous thing like, well, maybe they said it, maybe they didn't. Come on, the whole list of leaders put their name on it. And now when he comes back, they, it's as though the statute of limitations is run out in their wicked minds. And they're doing all of this stuff. And Nehemiah said, no, not under my watch. And he said, you keep trying to do this stuff. I'm going to put my hands on you. And he must have meant it because from that time forth, they didn't do it anymore. Yep. Not everybody's enjoying this, but just hang tight. Look down at verse number 23. Here's one more little item. In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod. What? This is the very thing they said they wouldn't do. They had intermarriage. And what is the godly leader's response to this? I contended, verse 25, I contended with them and cursed them, which doesn't have to do with vulgar language, by the way. He just didn't have anything good to say about them. And he, he told it like it was, that they were compromisers and that they were evil and they'd committed wickedness. He said, I contended with them and cursed them, said negative bad things about them, and smote certain, say what? Smote certain of them and, 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 and some of them must try to get away. And he said, no, no, you're not. And grabbed them by the hair and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your wives. He got a hold of them, smacked some of them upside the head. Others got a hold of them, pulled their hair out, and said, You agreed that you're going to live this way. Now, are you going to live this way? And he made them agree to it. See. Now, hold on just a second. This is, uh, my goodness, where's time gone? 2019. This is the 21st century. This kind of leadership is totally unacceptable. This would not work. I know the hypersensitive, touchy, touchy uh, society and culture in which we live, and people in the church views are getting just about as touchy. I understand that. And, and if in all of this, and I say I liked it, I, I do like it. I do. If you're saying by that, Brother Sam, he probably pastored a church that way. Uh, no. no, not this way. And the reason not is because there are certain guidelines that are placed upon 
a pastor, if you remember First Timothy and chapter number 3. And part of that is not to be a brawler. He's not to be a striker. So God put limitations to control this thing. I'm just telling you what happened then. And it's not so much the behavior of Nehemiah that I want us to learn, but the sensitivity to sin that we ought to learn. Rather than being sensitive to how people might think about us speaking against sin, we better be sensitive to God and to be sensitive about sin. And so if somebody wants to know, why would Nehemiah behave in such a manner? Why is this in the Word of God? Well, I just have to tell you, God never rebuked him for this. And in fact, God used him to do some house cleaning with this. So I'm going to have to say that this was in the realm of God's will, and this one was manifesting godly leadership. Now, again, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are boundaries that are put upon the behavior that we're supposed to have. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle and patient, apt to teach, and in meekness instruct those that oppose themselves. I'm very well aware of that, and know that's the boundaries that we're supposed to live within. But I would be upset with myself if I didn't have the same desire or the same anger towards willful sinfulness against God. And what's happened in so many of our pulpits and so many of our churches, we are so, and so many have become so accustomed to sin and the sinfulness of sin that somebody that's living a spiritual life from very carnal to spirit-filled, if they're at least a third of the way through, they're an exceptional Christian in today's time. And that's sad. Well, this person, they come to church, yes, they have a position, but here's what they're doing. And here's their business practices, and here are their hobbies that take them away from the house of God. And here is their conduct, and here is their music, and here is the way they entertain themselves. Well, you know, we live in a different time. No, no, no. No, it's not that God's people were supposed to be separated uh, from the worldly way. It's that God's people are supposed to be separated. It doesn't matter if you can cross the days of Nehemiah and come all the way to the end of the Old Testament age and bring it into the New Testament. The standard of separation, I'm just trying to tell you, God never meant for His people that wear His name to be like the people of the world. This is not supposed to be. And that people are is one thing, that preachers don't care is another thing. That's another problem. And that's a big problem. So, no, I don't advocate going and getting somebody's, there's a lot of beards around now. I'm not advocating. And at this stage of my life, I'm in no shape to go get a hold of anybody and trying to work them over, you know. It'd probably be very damaging to my health. Uh, so, I, I, I'm not advocating that. But I am advocating having the same attitude of detesting sin that Nehemiah had. Why was he so shook up? Did you ever think maybe his proximity to God had something to do with his Reaction to sin? They, two or three of them said they believe it. I'm going to try it over here. Did, did we ever consider that this strange behavior was really strange to us? Really motivated because of his walk with God? He was sensitive to sin. And he was there when the revival took place and when they said, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do this anymore, we're going to start doing this, we're going to take care of the house of God, we're going to observe the Sabbath day, and we're not going to intermarry with the heathen, we're not going to adopt the ways of the heathen. He was there when the Spirit of God so moved upon the place that they made this covenant with God and put their names to it. It could be, my friend, that his 
walk with God. I call it his proximity to God. It's close enough to God so that sin looked really sinful. People that aren't very close to God don't think sin looks so sinful. But if we're serious about a walk with God and closeness to God, the closer we get to Him, the more sinful sin appears. I said the closer we are with God, the more sinful sin appears. Well, that's the way it is. I mean, that's just the way the people want to go. Yeah, that's what the bad prophets of their day did, of the Old Testament. That's that's what they did. Well, this is what the people want. What can you say? And so they'd go along with it and justify their sin. And sadly... That wasn't just something that happened back then. It's something that happens now. That's a sad situation. A real sad situation. Why does this sound so extreme? Why? Well, we pretty much have grown accustomed to the political style of leadership in our country. It's almost like our land. You ought to read uh, Hosea 13 sometime and see how a nation lost their mind. Now, don't read it now, please. I'd like to finish this little sermon effort. And so, but, but it's almost like our, in our culture, there is the loss of ability to make a, a totally legitimate right decision. It's like it's just absent. It's not there. It's just not. And leadership is lacking in the family, yes, sir. Amen. in child rearing. Right. I was just talking to one of the brothers and not only uh, talking about the Montoro family who have now had, what, six uh, young people graduate from Heartland Baptist Bible College. What a blessing. And, and watch some of the large families in Southwest. We had one family. Did the Joneses have 12 or 13? 12? The Lindsays had 16 kids, and uh, I know the Montoros, what, 12? 12 children. Well, if they're halfway there with six graduates, yeah, that would be 12. And, and some large families, you know. And I used to tell people at Southwest, if you, if you don't think people ought to have a large family, you might want to go tell somebody else about it, but don't come tell me about it. Number one, it's none of your business at all. And who should be raising up a godly seed? Who should be raising up a generation to stand up for God? What kind of homes should these young people be coming from that are going to one day stand in pulpits and teach and lead and all of this kind of thing about the things of God? And, and where, you know, there are many testimonies to the fact that when there is proper godly leadership, you can raise kids in the 21st century to glorify God. Why, of course you can, whether it's a family of 12 or 16 or 2. It doesn't matter. Uh, Oh, the times are so hard. The world has never been a place conducive to raising godly children. Not since the Garden of Eden. Never, never has it been. Never has there been a time, oh, this is a great era to raise children. You can go back human history and look at all the eras, and they've all been affected the same way by sin. 
And it's opposite, I'm talking about the mentality and the attitude of a God-forsaking world is opposite to the teaching of the Word of God. And yet, where there is the right kind of leadership, there are families that can still be raised to glorify God. And there are still churches that can be pastored, not to go with the latest trends and the winds that are blowing, but to be a biblical New Testament church. Authentic, real. Yeah. Brother Wayne Hardy kind of coined it. I love it. Not chasing after what is trendy, but committed to what is timeless. Well, I love that line. Be committed to what is timeless, not trendy. I was just preaching, and uh, um, yeah, I was up in the state of Maryland, and uh, uh, I noticed an individual there, and he came and talked to me later and said, uh, I'm a pastor, and he told me the town where he was a pastor. And you just kind of tell by the appearance and everything that, oh, you're a pastor, you know. So I, I know it doesn't make you a man of God because you wear a suit and tie. It doesn't make you a man of God. That doesn't make you more spiritual or more godly. I understand that. But I'm, I'm kind of the old school, uh, and we try to promote this at Heartland as best we can. Just kind of be the old school. There's still dignity to the office of a preacher and a pastor. And the biggest thing is not to be cool and make sure you blend in with everybody and don't look unusual. Just go ahead since you're doing something so significant as speaking for God. And how about we not follow all the trends down? How about we just step it up and look like a preacher? Yeah. Okay, so anyway, this guy told me, he said, uh, so I would probably disagree with you. You would probably disagree with me on a lot of the philosophy and things about how we carry out ministry and such as that, our music and our standards and such as that, there would probably be significant disagreement between you and me. I said, well, that's entirely possible. I, you, I, I don't know. I don't, this is my first time to meet you. And so then as we talked just a little bit, very shallow conversation, and then he said before he walked away, he said, do you have any advice to give me? He told me his age, like 36 or 7 or 8. He said, do you have any advice to give me? I said, yes, I do. Are you called to preach? He said, yes, I am. I said, then let God make you his man. Don't let trends and fads and fashion dictate to you what you're going to be. Don't let all the stuff you read on the social media, he had already brought up social media, don't let all that stuff affect you. As a matter of fact, you probably won't be any less a man of God if you never read that stuff. And why don't you just make it your business to live in the Bible and let the Word of God and God by His Word and His Holy Spirit shape you and make you His man instead of trying to look like or be like a contemporary cookie-cutter model. God will fashion you and make you what He wants you to be. Let Him. Don't let others do that for you. Don't let others. Learn to think for yourself. And then I told him this. Be committed. I've got one more thing. Be committed to what is timeless, not trendy. I said, you start following the trends and you'll just hop on board with one and it's changed again. And you'll spend your entire life following uh, trends and never really know who you are. Why don't you have some, be committed and devoted to what is timeless and get your feet on the ground and let the Word of God ground you and be committed to that instead of all the latest trends. I still believe that way. I do. I believe that with all my heart. 
I, I mean that. I mean it sincerely. I sit down with young preachers all the time and just say, why are you worried about what this guy says and what that guy says and what's being said here and what's being... Do you have a Bible? You're not going to give an account. Listen to this. You're not going to give an account to some of the leaders of fund, the new fundamentalism. You're not going to give an account to them. You're going to give an account to Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. Now, why don't you start thinking about what will finally and ultimately please him? That's where Nehemiah was. Yeah, but Nehemiah, now things have changed, you know. I mean, the winds of change have blown while you were gone away. He said, no, God hasn't changed, and our devotion to him should not change. And our, oh, oh, man, just be devoted to what is true and what we know is right. Now, why does this happen? Lack of leadership. There was an older, uh, very old man in the church when I started out in the ministry in 1967. His name was Frank Godso. And Frank Godso was a lieutenant, that's a title I gave, uh, kind of a lieutenant to J. Frank Norris, who was, uh, you know, kind of a father of the independent fundamental uh, independent Baptist movement. And J. Frank, uh, uh, Frank Godso was one of his right-hand men. And Frank Godso was a wonderful man of God. And wrote books. He wrote a book on the house of God, a blood body that is uh, the doctrine of the church. Just wonderful. Wrote a book on the revelation, a great work on the revelation. And this was, this was an intelligent man. And Dr. Godso said to me one day when our pastor, I was an assistant pastor. Dr. Godso was there and he, I don't know, he liked me and he just, uh, I appreciate it. And he just kind of took me under his wing. I, he and I made visits together, spent time together. And Dr. Godso said, Sam, he said, uh, what kind of, you know what kind of man of God he was? The last year he was alive, he wore glasses about yay thick. And he died in May. And he was on his fourth time through the Bible that year in May when he died. So he was crowded 90 years of age and still digging in. You know what I mean? And old Dr. Godso said, Sam... Uh, I appreciate our pastor because he has the courage to take a stand and stand for the right thing and tell it like it is. He said, a lot of preachers today remind me of an old dog we had when I was a boy. He said, my dad would hook up the horse and the buckboard and we'd head off to either go work at the farm. And if we're going to do some farm work and check on the cattle and build fence and things like that, then we go down the road from our house and there's a Y there. And he said, if we're going to go work on the farm, we go this way. If we need to make a trip to town for supplies, then we go this way. And he said, we had an old dog. And he said, this dog loved to think that he was leading everything. So when the horses hitched up, he said that dog would get in front of that horse. And he would go prancing down the road like everybody should know, I'm leading this. uh, I'm leading today. They're following me. And he said, we'd come to that why. And he didn't know if we were going to work on the fence or if we were going to town. So he said the dog would come right up to that wine. He'd go over the ditch and do business over there. And we'd go on and go which direction we was going. And as soon as we got to going that way, here came the dog running up, get back in front, like, see, I told you I'm leading this. <laughs> now, basically, he wasn't the leader. He was waiting to see where they went and get out in front and try to make it look like he's leading. Which way is the wind? Uh, oh, you want to go that way? Okay. The, the favorable winds, the desirable winds are blowing this way. And now our preacher gets out like, I'm the leader. 
I'm just going to tell you whatever winds are blowing out here in this world, if they're not created by the truth of the Word of God and created by the breath of the Holy Spirit, you better stay away from it. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Real leadership. Giving direction. We've got to understand, listen to this, Nehemiah knew this. There is a propensity in man to drift. You don't take a leader like Nehemiah, send him off to uh, Persia, apparently. You don't take a man like Nehemiah, who had so much to do with this, in leading the nation to come to this place of genuineness and seriousness. Though Ezra did the preaching, the Word of God was there. No, no doubt God worked. But you take Ezra, uh, I'm sorry, Nehemiah out of the picture when he comes back, there was not a drift to, to get more narrow. There was not a drift to get more straight. There was not a drift to get more godly. But there's a drift to go away from God. The old songwriter wrote it, didn't he? Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wondering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Come on, did he have it right or not? He understood the human heart. And the human heart is bent towards sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And who can know it? And the heart is bent to this way. So that if you take the godly leadership uh, out of the picture, if you take the strong, thus saith the Lord, out of the picture, which way do you think she's going to drift? Closer to God? Or farther from God? Paul told us something about the human nature himself when he said, The things that I would do, I don't. And the things that I would not do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of sin and of death? Is everybody with me here? And you know what godly leadership is supposed to do? Take care of the drift. We're prone to drift. Prone to drift. I remember at Bible Baptist Church, I pastored there 16 years. Things were going good, but I remember sitting down in about the year of 1986. I remember thinking, well, you know, the attendance is good, the offering's good, everything's good, but eh, something right. And I saw that unwittingly, not on purpose, just kind of drifting this way, focusing in things on things that really weren't our main responsibility, not the soul-winning effort or emphasis or the missions or the bus ministry or reaching sinners. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to start a Christmas season. I'm sorry I don't want to pour ice water on anybody's Christmas spirit right here in the month of June, but I'm just telling you, He didn't come to save the retail industry. He came to save sinners. That's why He came. When our focus is not there, then we've drifted. I can remember having a family meeting. It sort of reminded me when I was at Stillwater, I, I, and even at Southwest for a little bit, when I still had a life before Heartland came. I used to like to go fishing. My favorite deal was fishing out of a float tube. And I would go fishing with different guys, including the family at times. But I have to tell you, I liked it at times when I would get up way early on a Monday morning. And I remember going over towards I-35, and there's one of our church members. His dad had a a large uh, farm pond there, and there were uh, nice bass in that pond. Willow trees around this east side of it. Oh, man, it was beautiful. 
And I'd get a float tube, fish out of a float tube, but on the waders and things, the little flaps on the end, you could mobile around the pond, you know. And I got in that pond uh, about, oh, this, this all started happening about 8.30, 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning. And the next thing I know, I mean, I was hauling in fish. It was amazing. I mean, I was catching three and four pound, two and to four pound bass. I mean, great eating stuff. Didn't you put him back in the water? No, we ate him. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm catching all these fish and I'm putting them on the stringer and uh, put, uh, tying them to the, to the uh, float tube and all of that. I'm having such a great time. And then by this time, it's 10 o'clock or 10.30, and it's getting hot. It's in the summer, and I'm thirsty, and I'm saying to myself, well, I need to take these over to the shore, time up over there, and get me something to drink. And so I looked where my car was and where the, you know, the ice cooler was and everything. I looked, It wasn't there. Well, it's way back there. Who moved my car? Nobody. I just got out there so busy catching fish and having such a good time that on this fairly large pond, I just drifted way off of where I thought I was. And when I looked up thinking I was back there, I was way over here. You don't get it? If we're not careful, friend... We can pay way too much attention to what's going on out here. What everybody else is doing that's successful. The God, the leader, come back and he said, no, no. Here's what we have committed to do. Here's what is true and here's what is right. And we need the kind of leadership where a pastor has the fortitude and the courage to take the Word of God and stand up and say, we're not going that way. Here's the Word of God and we're going to walk in it. And stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And confront drift. And confront the change in music. And confront the, the absolute abhorrence of standards of separation. Confront it. You know basically what we need? We need some Moses that will just destroy the golden calf. That's really what we need. We need some Elijahs that will get back in the pulpit again and take the one the authority of the Word of God. And get back in the pulpit again. And, and build an altar and pretty much force a decision. <laughs> Choose. Who are you going to serve? You can't walk on both sides of this road. Right. You can't do that. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't please the world and please God. And Elijah built that altar and said, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. If Baal is God, go for it. If he's not, then serve God. Yeah. That's the kind of leadership we need again. Right. We need some Elishas that are not afraid to confront sin. We need some Micaiahs. Who are willing to say it alone if they have to say it alone, but still say what the Word of God says. Men, we need some godly, Nehemiah type, godly leadership in churches, in pulpits, in this day and time. Desperately. Desperately. Dad, you say, I'm not a preacher. Well, Dad, your family desperately needs a spirit filled husband and dad. To lead the family that is willing to say to the family, no, 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 we don't go there. Amen. We don't do that. Yes, sir. We don't watch that. Right. We don't listen to that. We don't dress like that. We don't do relationships like that. Yes, sir. Amen. Yeah, that's what's needed in this, in this day. Of, well, it's their choice. It's whatever. <laughs> whatever makes you happy. 
You you never find that conclusion in the Word of God. Never, ever. God, give us some godly leaders. Lord, thank you for your Word.